Our Father in heaven, we would not come before thee unless we knew that we had thy Holy Spirit in our midst. For it is the Holy Spirit that leads us into all truth, and it is the Holy Spirit that sheds abroad in our hearts the love of God. O Lord, may thy presence be with us in a special and mighty way this meeting, and may the grace of God and the strength of his salvation be in every heart. We pray in Jesus' saving name. Amen. It's a difficult thing to try to juggle the things that I would like to say here. Brother Anderson, some of you, a few of you missed his excellent presentation here this afternoon where he brought forward just such straightforward, clear, unequivocal truths on the salvation message. I mentioned this morning that I was going to look at this issue of forensic justification. Now firstly, let me make it plain where that concept of forensic justification comes from. It isn't some new idea that some Seventh-day Adventists have suddenly found. It comes right out of the neo-Calvinistic concepts. Let me explain to you. The hardcore Calvinism, which is still, of course, in the world today, says that some are preordained by God to eternal salvation and some to eternal damnation or eternal destruction. And we should not question the justice of God in that he has made that delineation that some will live forever in eternal bliss and others will live forever in eternal torment. What a wicked... Uh, wicked message. It was um, Thomas Aquinas. Remember he was after the turn of the millennium. Thomas Aquinas that gave the answer for this and he said well here is the situation. We often increase our joy by contrast. And the fact that we can see these poor, miserable souls burning in eternal torment just increases the joy that we have in heaven. I don't wonder what kind of mind Thomas Aquinas had. Would you have that if that was your mother in excruciating agony for eternity? You think heaven would be a happy place? How would you feel about it? If it was your brother, your wife, your husband, your son, your daughter or whoever... What a doctrine. But they believe that those that have been preordained, they cannot lose salvation, no matter what they do. Or oh, that doesn't mean they don't say, because you've been saved in thankfulness to God, you should try to live the best life you can and a life to honor him. Oh, yes, they say that. But if you don't, you're still assured of heaven. My Bible says the soul that sinneth it shall. That's plain, isn't it? Let's take the plain word of God, brethren and sisters. Where do these theologians get those horrible doctrines from? Where do they get these situations from? 
I want to follow what God says. The soul that sinneth. It doesn't say uh, the soul that sinneth that isn't preordained. Any soul that sinneth, it shall die. It doesn't say it will burn forever, by the way. It says it will die. It would be bad enough if the wicked were going to burn through for eternity. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Oh, I know some of the statements say everlasting uh, fire and so on. But we've got to understand the concrete concepts of the Hebrew mind, even though it's written in, in the Greek language. The Hebrews had one of the most concrete minds. I don't mean that they were hard-headed, but they thought in concrete terms, not in, a, in um, abstract terms. You look at the Hebrew language. Very few abstract words in Hebrew. Very, very few. Now, even in English, we often use the concrete. You know, when I say he got hot under the collar, you know what I'm talking about. That's a concrete way of saying he became very angry. Um, the Hebrew says his nose burned. That meant the same thing. When God said, and Enoch walked with God, didn't mean that he was taking a stroll down the street with God. That um, concrete statement was talking about relationships, an abstract situation, but God used what the Hebrews used, very concrete ways of saying things. And that's how it is when it says everlasting fire. It says Sodom and Gomorrah burned with everlast uh, everlasting fire. What does that mean? Is Sodom and Gomorrah still burning? No. It means that the consequences were everlasting. That's why Sodom and Gomorrah will never be rebuilt. That's what we're talking about there. Now, if you want to know what the Bible teaches, there are many of it, but here's a plain statement in 2, Timothy, uh, 2 Thessalonians. Let's look at what the Bible says about what happens to the wicked. God is not about to perpetuate evil in this universe. If the wicked were to burn for eternity, then you would have to face the realization that sin would be in the universe for eternity. Is that a reasonable conclusion? And that will not be. How could the Bible say that affliction or sin will not rise up a second time if it was going to exist for eternity through the lives of all the lost who are burning for eternity. God's going to make an end of sin. He's going to put away sin from this planet and from the universe. And in 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9, talking of the wicked says, who shall be punished with everlasting what? Destruction. That's not everlasting burning. They're going to be destroyed eternally. <coughs> God is not a cruel God. Not a cruel God. You know, I wonder if we can help these folk coming in to find a seat. Could you do that? Because it's not easy. Maybe someone might need to move up a little. We don't want them having to stand. There's some wonderful... Actually, you've been very kind to them. We've left the best seats available to them right up here at the front so if any of you folk want to have good seats they're available for you right down the front here 
You're welcome to have them. So that's what the Bible teaches, the words of Paul, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, but the hardcore Calvinists will have nothing of this. God has preordained some to eternal salvation and they will live forever and ever and ever. And he has ordained others to eternal destruction and they will live forever, eternal punishment, they'll live forever and ever and ever. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. <coughs> now some of the neo, neo just means new Calvinists, they've been uncomfortable with this ever-burning torment for, by predestination. They start to feel that that's a little out of touch with the 20th century. So they've come up with a new theology for them. They have begun to teach not only that the predestined ones were saved on Calvary 2,000 years ago, those who were predestined to salvation, they're now saying the whole of the human race was predestined to eternal salvation 2,000 years ago. We were in Christ. Everyone here, everyone that's ever lived, past, present and future at the time of Christ, were in Christ 2,000 years ago when he died on Calvary. It's a rather mystical kind of statement. They go back to the fact that they say all were in Adam in the, in the sense that, you know, all of us are the genetic sons and daughters of Adam. After all, every one of us can trace our heritage back to Adam. In fact, we can trace it back to Noah for that matter. After all, if we want to get a little closer to the present time, Every one of us is a descendant of Noah. We might say some were Shemites and some were Hamites and some were Japhethites, but they were the sons of Noah. And so there's not one of us, no matter what our race is or what our physical character is, we can all trace back to Noah. But the Bible talks about being in, as in Adam all die. So in Christ shall all be made alive. I don't know that they're saying it's genetic, but they're saying in some way, I, I believe it's a very mystical concept, all the human race was in Christ when he died on Calvary. To the point that in the signs of the times, that's the American signs of the times, November 1993, Russell Holt wrote what I believe is terrible blasphemy. In Christ, we paid the penalty for sin. I want to tell you, I didn't contribute one whit to my salvation. You're not contributing to it. We won't be saved because we paid any portion of the penalty of sin. The Bible never talks about it. What I read is he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised. Who's the he? Jesus. The chastisement of his peace was upon us and with his stripes we are healed. 
uh, all through the Bible, Christ died that I might have eternal life. It wasn't Christ and I that died on Calvary. Christ died for me. He took my place that was rightfully mine. I deserve to die, not just the first death, but the eternal death. But on Calvary, Jesus was willing to take my sinful life and die for me if I am willing to accept and be healed by that sacrifice. This morning, it, we made it very plain that we are justified and sanctified by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We have both our title and our fitness for heaven through Jesus' sacrifice. They're not differently defined. Christ's sacrifice defined both our fitness or our, our title and our fitness for heaven because he died for our justification, he died for our sanctification. His blood is for our justification and his blood is for our sanctification. That is so plain in the scriptures. But the neo-Calvinists are putting forward this concept. Now, unfortunately, some of those who are prominent in our church today are reading these neo-Calvinist books. Now, I'm not guessing about that. I know that is true. Thank you. And perhaps I won't go into the details, but um, I can name authors that they have been reading that have led them into believing what the neo-Calvinists believe. They're not believing the hardcore Calvinist idea that only some are predestined. It's this new Calvinism that says all were saved. And amazingly, they also say that the only way we can lose our salvation is if we actively reject the salvation that Jesus has offered. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it, to some things that are coming into the Adventist church when we read concepts such as uh, all were saved on Calvary and we can only lose that salvation if we persistently and willfully reject it. The same concepts of the neo-Calvinists. That leads to the concept that not everyone will be victorious over sin. Now, in our church, some of those preaching this are saying that um, it's possible to have victory over sin. God can give us sanctified lives, but they fall short of saying that all that will be saved will have lived those lives. I had an interesting dialogue, and strangely enough... Um, I bored over, I haven't had a chance to look at it, the um, transcript of the telephone conversation. A two-hour telephone conversation is a big transcript I discovered. I don't know when I'll ever get to look back and see what I said and what uh, the other two on the, in the conversation said. But uh, in one part of the conversation, we got to this point. Will all have lived up to all the light that they have had that will be saved? Remember I mentioned that this morning? And the answer ultimately was no. Listen, if you haven't lived up to the light, you don't have Christ within your life. It's impossible. 
Now they're saying that this is the wonderful truth, the wonderful God that he saved the whole human race on Calvary. Well, there's no question that Jesus died for the whole world. The scripture says that, doesn't it? But does that mean that he saved the whole world on Calvary? There's a little difference, isn't there? Christ died for it. He provided the salvation for the whole human race on Calvary. But it's a different thing to say that he saved everyone. How do I know? The Bible is so clear on salvation. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, that didn't happen on Calvary 2,000 years ago. Not for me. I wasn't around to confess my sins. Whosoever confesseth and forsaketh his sins shall have mercy. Now, that's an Old Testament text. That comes out of Proverbs. But you see, whosoever confesseth and forsaketh his sin shall have mercy. What about those that haven't confessed? You didn't confess 2,000 years ago any more than I did. Whether you look at the Old or the New Testament, when it says, Blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates of the city. You weren't keeping his commandments 2,000 years ago. Therefore you didn't have a right to the tree of life. Or when we say. The dragon was wroth with the woman. And went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Which keep the commandments of God. And have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Or here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. And the faith of Jesus you're talking about active situations. Now, the Bible nowhere talks about this issue of forensic justification. The only, well, one of the few texts that's ever used to try to um, claim this, of course, is Romans 5.18. Therefore, as by the offence of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Oh, what a wonderful saviour we have. Nowhere does it say this is a forensic. Do you know what they mean by There's a lot of words. They mean the same thing, but it's confusing sometimes. They'll call it forensic justification. They'll call it judicial justification. They'll call it legal justification. They'll call it temporary justification. There are a number of different terms that are used. But I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, the Bible doesn't teach it. If this was a great major theme of the saving acts of God, we should find it in explicit and, and repetitive messages in the Bible. Now, I find the message of, uh, of justification by faith repetitive in the Bible, don't you? I mean, we read Romans 5, 1 this morning. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you go back to Romans chapter 1 and you get the same kind of thing, theme there after uh, verse 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And you can look up Galatians 3.11, Hebrews 10.34, Habakkuk 2.4 and so on. All of them are dealing with justification by faith. 
and it comes over and over in the New Testament, especially even into the Old Testament, but especially in the New Testament. So I know that that is a major theme of salvation and a major theme of the gospel of salvation. But where is this forensic justification that apart from ourselves, independent of ourselves, God saved us 2,000 years ago on Calvary, the objective gospel as it's often called by these neo-Calvinists? Where is it? If it's such a major theme of the message of Christ, our righteousness. And I go a step further. Come into the pages of the writings of the servant of the Lord. She has written into the thousands of pages on the message of Christ, our righteousness, as related to the message that came to God's people in 1888. Now, if this is one of the major themes of the message of Christ, our righteousness, maybe she would have written 10 or 12 pages on it. Maybe 100 or 200 pages on it, if this is part of the major theme. But I go from cover to cover. One supporter of this said, well, in a number of places it's inferred. Listen, brethren and sisters, you won't have to look for inferences. It would be so clear, it would be so plain, it would be so obvious that you couldn't miss it. I told, remember I spoke here a couple of years ago, I think it was, over there in Gaisley, on this theme. And I urged you to read three passages. How many? Let me remind you what those three passages... You better start writing them down if you, if you think you didn't read them um, back there two years ago. Brethren and sisters, we better know what we believe on this. These are the principles that will lead us to salvation or to be deceived and therefore lose our salvation. And I have all the, the books. You might want to do, go further and read all those four Maroon volumes that give basically all that Sister White wrote on these topics. But if not, I have found the three most powerful presentations that you can't miss it. I've gone through it and over it to see whether I'm missing something. I'm not missing anything any more than you will be when you read them. They are first selected messages, 355 to 405. First selected messages, 355 to 405. Third selected messages, 156 to 405. Uh, to 105. Let me start again. Third selected messages, um, 156 to 204. And then testimonies to ministers, 90, sorry, 89 to 98. There's a bit of maybe 110 pages in those three passages. But I want you to go through those three passages. They've been written directly on the message of Christ, our righteousness. They're her, her direct understanding of the message. I want you to go through it and see if there's even an inference towards forensic justification. But I want you to also mark down how many times she talks about the faith of Jesus. How many times she talks about justification by faith? How many times she talks about righteousness by faith? Listen, if, as is being put forward by the 1888 study committee and Jack Sequeer is true, then Sister White missed the whole point of the message of Christ, our righteousness. I don't believe she did. I believe that she would have stood firmly and said, this is not the truth of God. And I am very burdened, dear brethren and sisters, 
deeply burdened that some folk around the world, whether it's over there in France, that's one of the reasons that we chose France for the camp meeting. That's why we're urging you to come and help us over there in France because already there's not only opposition that's coming from conference folk, it's the opposition that's coming from those who are in charge of the 1888 study committee over in France and they're going to do everything to try and keep people from coming to those meetings. We've urged them to come. Come let us reason together, saith the Lord. We want them to reason with us from the word of God. See if what they believe is from the word of God or whether it is the deception of Satan for these last times. I want to tell you, when I discover the very same concepts in the writing of the neo-Calvinists of the 20th century, I say the chances are about 99.9 repeat as certain that it's error. That's how I would see it. But then when I go to the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, I'm left with no doubt, my dear brethren and sisters, that this is another one of Satan's myriads of deception. Remember, the last message that Jesus gave on the second coming dealt with deception. In Matthew 24, three times he comes back to this issue of deception and he talks about even the very elect almost being deceived. So we need to know this truth from the word of God. Brethren and sisters, the reason that people are being deceived is because they're listening to men and they're not coming through on what the word of God says. If you can find texts that say it, I've always said that in Romans 5, if only... People would read verse 17 before verse 18. They would have no doubt on salvation. Because verse 17 says, For if by one man's offence death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life with him. Now somewhere I have left my even. I wonder if you could see if it's in one of those little plastic bags for me. It's this book, but I was hoping not to have to open this one up to um, read from it. I want, because I want to give you some. And by the way, I know that many of you will need that book. Some of you already have it. It's, uh, and this is the one that both... Ah, thank you. That one's a little more thumbtack than this one. Because it's the one I've been using. I want us to, to thank you so much. I want us to realize that, that you've got to receive the grace of God. That means you've got to accept it. You receive the gift, it says, or uh, they that receive, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Now, brethren and sisters, I'm going to tell you here, and I know the word receive can be used passively and it can be used actively. You know, he received a beating is a very passive thing. He didn't do anything. He, he wasn't actively participating. He was just a recipient of it. But there's no question this is talking about receiving the active, active way because it says they that receive of the grace and of the... Uh, 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 the abundance of grace and of the righteousness will reign with him. You've got to receive it, brethren and sisters. This idea that the only way you can lose salvation is by actively rejecting it. I just look at the statements of, uh, of Paul in Hebrews where he said, how shall we escape if we neglect 
All you have to do is neglect, brethren and sisters. You don't have to say, Lord, I will have nothing to do with you. Lord, I reject you. Satan, I accept you. If you don't accept Jesus Christ, who are you following? Automatically Satan. You can, it's true, you've got to reject Satan for Christ. Of course, if you actively reject Christ, you're going to lose salvation. But you don't have to do that to lose salvation. All you have to do is just go along, dreaming through life, make no decision at all, and you're in eternal destruction. Don't let anyone deceive you on that point and say, isn't this a beautiful gospel? It's a most unscriptural presentation of the truth of God. Now, in this, it's an amazing, all this, this in Christ material comes into these neo-Calvinists. Now, some of you remember in his book, Elder Sequira says very plainly that the in Christ motif is dealing with corporate solidarity. Now that's a funny term, but it really means that we're all corporately in Christ on Calvary 2,000 years ago when Jesus died for sin. Now, is that what Paul is saying in in Christ? What, are he, what is he saying? Well, let's go over to Galatians 1.22. He does refer to this in Christ. Galatians 1 and verse 22. And Paul just says simply, And was unknown by faith unto the churches of Judea which were in Christ. Well, that doesn't give us any clue. But it does sound that it might not refer to Calvary because it's talking about churches. Now, these churches were formed after Calvary, but it's not certain um, that's what's referring to. Come over to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that what we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That means in Christ. Now that starts to look more that we're to be made the righteousness. It's not just declared righteous. You notice the words there? We are to be made righteous in him. Now there's always this battle when we're talking about Salvation, when we're talking about justification, does it mean made righteous or does it mean declared righteous? Listen, God doesn't declare anyone righteous that's unrighteous, does he? It's like a judge saying to a man that's just been got a guilty verdict, you're innocent. What would you think of a judge when the jury came in and said, we unanimously have found the accused guilty? And the judge says, I declare you innocent. That judge wouldn't last long, would he, as a judge? God's not like that. If we are declared to be righteous, it's because we've accepted into our life the righteousness of Christ. It's the only way we can be declared righteous. I don't worry about it. The word justify means righteous. It doesn't mean declared righteous. It doesn't mean made righteous. It simply means righteous. 
That's what the word itself means. And I've often talked and they said, oh, you think it means made righteous and oh, we think it means declared righteous. No, I just know it means righteous. But I want to tell you, righteous is righteous. It's not evil, it's not wickedness, it's not unrighteousness. It's righteousness. Can you get any plainer than that? Sister White says, take the plain word of God. Once you do that, you don't have to be wondering whether it means this or something else. If a text becomes awkward to you or a, a, not clear to you, what do you do with it, brethren and sisters? Do you throw it away? No. What do you do? All right. You what was that, sister? Someone over here? What? You start looking at other texts that bear on that theme, don't you? Texts that may put it clear and plainly. You know, one text that seems to come up to think that God declares as righteous when we're still unrighteous is Romans 4.5. And this comes up all the time. It's the classic text of the Neo-Calvinists. One of the classic texts. Let's look at it. Romans 4.5. My, if you took it as it... It states, you might um, wonder about what it meant. It says, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. You mean that God makes righteous or declares righteous even the ungodly? His faith is counted for righteousness. Listen. Only a righteous man has faith. That's it. Let's get that clear. And it's talking about he does have faith. This doesn't say whether you remain ungodly. It just says that um, he justifies the ungodly. Listen, when Jesus came to this earth, when he died for us, how many godly people were there? How many humans are godly before they come to Jesus Christ? We're all ungodly. That's why we come to Christ. We don't say... Lord, when I get godly, then I'll come to you. If you do that, you'll never come to Jesus. You come to Christ because you are ungodly, because you are a sinner, because you are outside the saving power and grace of Jesus Christ. And you come and you say, Lord, please take this ungodly life of mine. Forgive me of my sins. I repent and I make restitution. Remember, Zacchaeus did all that, didn't he? You remember Zacchaeus? Did he repent? Oh, yes. Did he make restitution? Oh, yes. Did that lead him into the pathway of the saving grace of Jesus? Was he saved before that? No. But, you know, you see a text like this, it doesn't say whether you remain righteous or unrighteous or godly or ungodly. But then you go to other texts, like um, the 23rd chapter of Exodus. And then you get a clear picture of what happens in this situation. It leaves us in no doubt. If there's a text that's not exactly plain or seems to say something that doesn't seem consistent with the rest of the gospel, then you look at other texts. Exodus 23, 7. Keep thee far from a false matter, and the innocent and righteous slay thou not, for I will not do what? Whom? I will not justify the wicked. Brethren and sisters, that gives a clear picture, doesn't it? Once you get to the whole understanding of this, you can see. Well, you take another text. 
You look at these texts and that tells us that therefore those ungodly people that are justified have become ungodly. They've become righteous in the faith of Jesus and through his strength and power in their lives. In Christ. Did Paul just mean that we're all in Christ or mean that we're all in Christ on Calvary dying? Or did he have another meaning? Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, this is a very popular text used by those who are neo-Calvinists. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he died with him on Calvary. Is that what it says? What does it say? He... Now, brethren and sisters, is this talking about something that happened 2,000 years ago? Is that what Paul really meant? What's he talking about here? He's talking about conversion. He's talking about the new birth experience. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Don't tell me that Paul taught the false form of in Christ, that it, we're in Christ on Calvary. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the transformation of the life. That's what Paul understood. Now, I want to go back to that Romans sixteen seven that I used this morning briefly. Some of you were not here. But this text, I, I'll never forget the experience. I was preaching down at Angelus Oaks. That's way up in the, the mountains um, of Southern California behind... Um, Loma Linda, maybe 20 miles or something, I don't know, maybe a bit more. And uh, that's bear company up there. The bear came into the cafeteria and had quite a feast. One of the nights we were there, somehow he was able to barge a door down and get in. But after the meeting that I took on the Saturday night, this man came to me, a layman, you know, People say, I'm not a minister, I'm not a theologian. Thank the Lord. You don't have to be, although all we are brethren, and we do believe in the priesthood of all believers, don't we? God has called us to minister. So let's not get too far away from it. But the lady often picked up things. You know, here I had it. And I'd used it in this book, and it was the very first text that I used when I was dealing with the In Christ motif. But it took this layman to suddenly enlighten me on the deeper significance of it. I'd written it here, Salute Andronicus and Junior, my kinsman. See, when I come to those kind of salutations, I never expect to find great theological answers in them, and so you read them much faster than you read the deeper writings of Paul. At least that's the tendency that I have. And that's how I'd read it. And then he said, this text just destroys the in Christ concept that we're on Calvary 2,000 years ago, dying with Christ. Salute Andronicus and Junior, my kinsmen, they must have been relatives of his, and my fellow prisoners, who are of a note amongst the apostles, who were also in Christ before me. Now listen, if the whole human race were in Christ 2,000 years ago on Calvary, then how could Paul have ever written this? If Paul believed that all died with Christ on Calvary 2,000 years ago, all became in Christ, we'd all be together in Christ. 
We would be the same time as Paul, by the way, just as Abel would have been at the same time as Paul. That's what it would have meant. But they said, no, we're in Christ. All it meant was we accepted Christ as our saviour. Or they accepted Christ as their saviour before I accepted him. So Paul, the persecutor, or Saul, the persecutor, had relatives that were already Christians when he was persecuting the Christians. Interesting, isn't it? This is the only evidence we have of that in Paul's writings. But there were some of his kinsfolk that were actually Christians while he was going through that terrible persecution. An interesting little sideline. But this destroys any thought that the 1888 study committee can be right on this in Christ or Jack Sequeira and certainly not the neo-Calvinists. It's just not true. It's just not biblical. We are people of the book. Seventh-day Adventists believe every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, but they don't go beyond that. We keep away from speculation. We try to avoid uh, in extrapolating beyond what the word says, but we want to come up to every message of the word. That is a true Seventh-day Adventist. And I believe all of us here believe that. You know, it's amazing how these neo-Calvinists play down the Christ in you. You know, there's two sides to this picture. I in Christ and Christ in me. But Paul doesn't ignore it, does he? Um, let's see some of the texts that best represent. Well, let's take Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That's in Christ still. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That's again saying that we are in Christ when we walk after the spirit and we reject the activities and the life of the flesh. Oh dear, I could say so much on this. Let's see which ones I can pick out here and which ones I don't need to pick. Well, Christ um, in you. Let's, let's look at, um, well, let's look at Colossians 1, 27. That's obviously uh, 28. To whom, Christ, whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you. That's the other side of the picture. Not us in Christ on this occasion, but Christ in you. This is Paul again. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, the hope of glory refers to the second coming or the return of Jesus Christ. And he relates the Christ in you as being the hope of glory. Or what about Galatians 2.20? It is not I, but Christ that liveth in me. That's Christ in me. It's both ways, brethren and sisters. Paul is not a monist on that. He doesn't... You know, I, I talked this morning about how you can't separate justification and sanctification apart. You go through the Bible, there are so many of these principles. They're different, but if you don't keep them together, you're going to destroy them both. You put justification without sanctification, or sanctification without justification, and you've hurt them, haven't you? You've destroyed them. 
But that's true of Christ in and in Christ. Now, sometimes we talk of them separately. I can talk to you about justification. I can talk to you about sanctification. But if you ever hear me talking about them, one from the other, please don't believe that I don't believe in both justification and sanctification as inseparable principles in the salvation of men and women. I do believe that with all my heart. Paul sometimes talked of these things one time and one the other time, but they're inseparable. And uh, so we have to keep that um, in mind. And that is true uh, in, in these issues here. It just comes through one after the other principles. And the Bible is replete with it. Now I'm being reminded that I've got no idea what the time is, to be honest. I haven't got a watch. What's the time? Isn't that amazing? Six o'clock. That means the Sabbath is... Well, let me just finish this point and then we'll have a special time to thank God for the Sabbath. After all, it doesn't mind. We can extend the Sabbath. We can't shorten it. That's the big problem. Let me um, say this, that Christ always put the two of them together. Every reference of Christ talking about in him... Or, or we, we in him, or he in us, they're always together. What I'll do is read you a couple of the statements, and then I'll give you some other references. Let's first go to um, John, 5, John 6, 56. And then I will have to cease. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Uh, John 15, 4, that's the vine and the branches, a classical concrete illustration. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. Those of you taking notes, also look at John 14, 17, John 14, 20, John 15, 7, um, John 17, 23, and then the passages of John himself, 1 John 3, 24, 1 John 4, 13 to 16. Always they're put together in these places because that's where they belong. If I am in Christ, Christ is in me. has to be that way. I don't know how you get around those texts. I in you and you in me, Christ said. Does that mean... We were in Christ and Christ was, was in us 2,000 years ago. That would be a little difficult seeing we didn't exist at the time. Oh, brethren, let's get away from these mystical concepts. There's enough mysticism in Catholicism that holds up a little piece of wafer and says that's the very body of Jesus Christ. We don't believe in those mystical concepts. We believe in the plain, clear, simple word of God. Listen, brethren, don't talk about being in Christ if you haven't allowed Christ to come into you. If you have not invited Christ to be in your heart and he's not in your heart, you're not in Christ. It's like the vine and the branch. If you're not, in, the, vine, the branch is not in the vine, the vine is not in the branch. Can you see that? If you separate that branch from the vine... Now, God does special things where a branch 
joins a vine or a tree. You know what happens when you, you start cutting in a tree and you've got the branch going into the tree. What happens to the wood where the join is? What do you see differently in the grain of the wood where the branch joins the tree? It's much stronger, isn't it? You've got that knotty kind of wood. Uh, God tries to give it a lot of protection, and that's what he does to us. But if that branch comes off, how could you ever say um, you're in Christ? You've, le you've left the tree. You've left the vine. So you can't be in Christ. Unless Christ is in you and you're in Christ, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, let us not be deceived, brethren and sisters. Let us take the message as it reads. And if you know folk that are being deceived by this message, I plead with you, somehow, someway, help them to see what the plain word of God says. I know it's difficult. I mean, I read the straightest questions and somehow people don't seem to see it or they don't want to see it. It's as if they're mesmerized. It's as if they've made a decision and no matter what truth they find, they're going to throw it out. But every now and again, you'll find people that will accept this truth. And praise the Lord for that. Well, we're going to have this special prayer of thankfulness to the Lord for the Sabbath. Why do the Sabbaths go so quickly? Do you find they go too fast or it's just me that has that problem? But the Lord knew that we only needed one in seven sometimes. I've questioned it, but the, um, that's all. And I tell you, I suppose if we had too many Sabbaths, we'd get too lazy or we would not value them. Something would go wrong. But I've been blessed this Sabbath. You know, be interesting. This Sabbath in Europe, next Sabbath in America, the following Sabbath in Oceania. But that's fine. You can still have the blessing of God's people, different people to look at, different eyes. But they're all bound together by one faith and one truth. Let's not throw ourselves apart by rejecting the truth that is so clearly defined in the word of God. Let's pray to that end as we thank the Lord for his Sabbath. Then I want you to come together because we're going to have a bit of a break. We're going to let you see some of these books here. And I'll just tell you briefly about a few of the books. There's marvellous books all over the, the tables here for you, for those who are interested in more reading. Our Father in heaven, you have set aside thy holy Sabbath day as a memorial of the great creative works that were accomplished at the beginning of this world. You blessed the Sabbath day. You hallowed it. And it became a sign of sanctification between you and your people. And Lord... As we look down through history, we find the Sabbath was not only kept in Eden, but Abraham kept all the commandments of God. And before ever the Israelite nation received the commandments, they received counsel on how to keep the Sabbath, reminding them 
of the principles that so many of them had lost while they'd been as captives in Egypt. Lord, we see how the psalmist speaks of the Sabbath and how Nehemiah was so insistent on faithful Sabbath-keeping and how the demise of Judah had been a direct result, according to Jeremiah, of their failure to keep the Sabbath. Lord, we think too of the fact that our Lord kept the Sabbath and declared himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath and even in death he rested on the Sabbath day. We think of how the Apostle Paul regularly kept the Sabbath and how faithful people down through the history of the New Testament time have continued to keep the flag of the truth of the Sabbath and how in the earth made new we all will keep the Sabbath. I pray, dear Father in heaven, that you will be with us, that we will continue to keep the Sabbath until Jesus comes so that we can continue it throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. Thank you for the wonderful blessings of today. And may not one be missing that is here, not even one, Lord, when thou comest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We could go through the whole of the chapter of chapter 7, but obviously the issue that we need to look at commences in the 14th verse of Romans, and so I will start there. Paul starts with this very strong statement, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. The question that comes to the attention of each one of us today is the question of, is this man, whether it be Paul himself or someone that um, he is addressing or a generic term, is this man a converted man or a not converted man? That issue is very critical to the concept of neo-Calvinism and to the issues confronting the, those who hold strongly to the message of the 1888 study committee. Elder Sequira unequivocally says that the man of Romans 7 is a saved man. This was an area that we dialogued on the telephone just recently. I believe the Bible is absolutely unequivocal in showing that this man is a lost man at his present state. Now we need to say something about this man. First, he is not a hypocrite. Secondly, he is very sincere. He's a genuine man that wants salvation. And he wants victory, that is plain. Because he talks about the things that he wants to do and the things that he wants not to do. And obviously he's talking about wanting to do the things that are consistent with true Christian living. But as we, we look at this passage, we find him doing exactly the opposite from what he wants to do. Now, let me 
from the beginning make it plain why this man is in a lost state as we proceed through the seventh, uh, from the 14th verse of Romans 7. If we look at Romans 8, 6, and remember that Romans 8 is just an extension of the same message of Romans 7. It flows through. The chapter headings were man-made. And in Romans 8, 6 it says, For to be carnally minded is what? Death. That's plain, isn't it? Isn't that a simple answer? That means eternal death. This man said he's carnal, sold under sin, if you like, sold a slave or under the bondage of sin. Therefore, he is at this point of time a lost man. Now, where did we get to? Of course, it was Augustine that um, brought in the concept that this was a converted man. How many things we can take back? His idea was that... In the pagan concept, there were tensions between the cosmic opposites. And here we have the flesh and the spirit. They're in cosmic tension. And neither will gain dominance over the other until, of course, the time when we enter heaven. But that's not what the Bible suggests here or plainly states. Let's have a look at some of the things. In my dialogue with Elder Sequira, the issue came to whether this was dealing with performance or just that inner sin that we have or whether we're talking about acts of sin, sins. You know, it's the old idea again, is that this big S-I-N, which is some great burden that we have within us in, inside, or is it acts of sins? And he said this had nothing to do with acts of sins. These weren't sins. This was this inner sin in our lives, a broad base, not the acts themselves. I said, you cannot hold that, Jack, because the very scripture itself, verse 18, makes it clear it's talking about acts. Let's look at verse 18. It says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, for the will is present with me. But how to what? What's the next word? Perform. Is that talking about some, what shall I say, vague, almost mystical inner situation of sin? Or is it talking about acts, performance? What are we talking about? You see, the words of Scripture make it plain. We're talking about sins that are committed. He is breaking down. He doesn't want to lust after a woman, and he's lusting after I don't know what the sins were here. He doesn't want to covet, but here he is coveting. He doesn't want to be disobedient to his parents, but he is in problem. He doesn't want to break the Sabbath, but he's breaking it. I don't know what the sins were. But here was a man earnestly trying to keep the law and failing miserably. You know, you get it there in verse 15. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. Ever been caught in that situation? Well, you know what's right, you want to do it, and you end up not doing it. You know what's wrong, you don't want to do it, and you end up doing it. Anyone been caught in that? I've got to put my hand up. Oh, yes. Let me explain the obviousness of this. This is obviously the classical legalist. You know... Um, Brother Anderson this afternoon said 
that he hadn't met many legalists. Well, I think most of us have gone through the legalistic stage, but as he said, if we've got any intelligence at all, we realise the misery of legalism and we seek to do something about it. Frankly, most times the wrong thing. That's the tragedy of it. But there's a man, he wants to... Why can't I live this Christian life? I'm trying. I'm earnest. I'm sincere. And here I am just doing the old things over and over again. I was preaching not on this topic but on something similar to it. I was preaching on legalism and antinomianism down in Mississippi late last year. And I just put up on the uh, screen an overhead in which I had legalism, um, antinomias in the middle, true principles of salvation in the middle between them. After it was over, a man came to me, I suppose a man in his 30s, strong, tall, broad-shouldered fellow. And he said, I've got to walk with you. He said, you've just described me perfectly. Now, what had I said? What did I say? I'd said things like, are you, any of you here, the kind of person that you've come to the health reform message? And my immediately goes out that cheese and that milk and that, those eggs and that butter or any dairy products. And you then get, get, get that chocolate is gone and the sugar, you know, the usual things. And you're going to be a health reformer. And you go on and you're doing great and suddenly you're seeing some other poor person hasn't reached where you now have come up to. And you become very either evangelical to that person or maybe even critical of that person. Because I'm up here now and you're still down here. That's classical of a legalist, isn't it? And I said, after a while, you know, you're still struggling and then suddenly you've got this overwhelming urge and you go to the store and you get a big block of chocolate and you're down this, this chocolate and... And then you're feeling so miserable and guilty that you've broken down. Well, they were some of the things. And he said, you just described what I've done myself. Did exactly the, the, what you said. And chocolate was a thing. But after a while, you say, I'm going to brace myself and start all over again. This time I'm going to make it. For a while, Satan's a master. He lets you have a few successes along the way. That only makes it a feast even more bitter. That's what's happening to this man. It wasn't chocolate, no doubt, but it was something else. We don't know what. It's not described here. But he's falling back. He's going for a while, I'm sure, and finding some success and thinking, at last I've made it. And down he goes again. It's terrible. Now, if you say that this is a converted man, what a miserable experience it is to be converted. The Bible says, Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. This doesn't sound very peaceful to me. What about you? It sounds misery to me. Torment. See, the legalist, if he stays in it, I mean, there are a few that probably stay in this state. It's frustrating. If you want to become a neurotic... 
I think that's possible that a person that doesn't resolve this will end up possibly being a suicide. Some Adventists are miserable people, under misery, torment. And you know God doesn't want that. If you really think this is a converted man, let's just look at Romans seven seventeen. Now, then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. It's not I, but sin that dwelleth in me. Compare that with Galatians 2.20. What does Galatians 2.20 say? It is not I, but Christ that liveth in me. Now, are they the same individual? When someone says this is a converted man, are they saying the man that says it's not I, but sin that dwelleth in me is the same individual that's saying it's not I, but Christ that liveth in me? You see the parallel of those texts in contrast? Listen, the man of Galatians 2.20 is a contented, peace-filled individual. Christ is dwelling in him. Do you think that Christ can dwell in your heart when you are... What does that mean? Three minutes. Five to seven. Well, we better take a little more than three minutes. Five minutes. <laughs> and if... It just doesn't make sense to say they're the same individual. And in fact, when he cries out, O wretched man that I am, in verse 24, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He realizes he's a lost man. A saved man doesn't need deliverance. He's already got deliverance. If you really believe that you were saved 2,000 years ago, or you believe you're the one saved, always saved, you don't worry about being delivered. You say, I'm already delivered. Of course, I don't believe in either of those concepts. This man is a lost man. He needs deliverance. And he asks the right question. I've seen people say, look, it's hopeless. I can't work for me. And they just go out in the world and they live the rest of their life in the world. But the most common thing in recent times is to go from the truth that they have, but they haven't found the answer to that truth, right over the pathway to salvation and they go into antinomianism. They go into the new theology. Christ did it all on Calvary. I accept his perfect law keeping, therefore uh, the Lord will save me. I have a relationship with Jesus. That's what it's, it's like. Oh, brethren, he wrote, asked the right question, who shall deliver me? And the answer comes immediately. I thank God through Jesus Christ. That's the answer. Listen, you can't do it alone. You can't do it on your own. We must ask Christ to take that sin. I'm learning that more every day. Asking the Lord, look, Lord, take my life today. Lord, I give you permission to have full control of my life today. No matter what happens, keep me calm. Don't allow me to get upset. Irritated? You don't have to become outright angry, but you can become irritated and still dishonor God, can't you? We've got to have a love for those that irritate us, but we can't irritate them back. We must turn away those nasty comments by soft answers. That's what the Spirit of God is. And, uh, you know, in the home, I tried practice it most in the home because I know if I can be calm and I can be, be even with my wife and my two children it's going to be easy out there in the world at large 
That's where you win those battles, it's in the home, or lose them in the home. You know, if you want to know what Colin David Standish is like, you ask my children, you ask my wife, and they will tell you. It's not what I am in the pulpit, it's what I am at home that makes the real element of Christianity. Because that is where we're most likely to have our guard down. And if we're getting angry with one another, if we're getting irritated, if we're using sharp words, we know we don't have Jesus living in us. And there's only one way to get that victory, and that is, Lord, I am helpless. We've got to acknowledge our helplessness. And we've got to acknowledge this to our family. Look. I'm just going to pray that I will never do that again. Every day I'm going to pray for the Lord's strength. That is so, so important. Very, very important. And so there are the answers. And look at it. What happens as soon as you allow Christ the full possession of your life? Don't worry about the last part of verse 27. That is only a restatement of what I was before. And I won't go into the Greek that brings that up. We don't have time. But that doesn't apply. Some versions of the Bible put, it, put the last part of verse 25 in front of verse 24 to show it's before he had his conversion experience that he's rehearsing there. The real thing we can go, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. And that brings us to verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and of death. Listen, there are two laws. We, whenever Adventists say that, people think ceremonial and moral law. Well, that's true. But here, in another context, there are two laws. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus and the law of sin and of death. And when you have the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, you now have full victory over the law of sin and of death. It's as simple as that. That's what Romans 7 and 8 is all about. To see how we can go from this legalistic idea, trying to do it ourselves, putting all the effort, being sincere, etc., but not finding Christ as the total answer. That's why every morning our prayers have to be so earnest. That's why every morning we must ask Jesus to take our life. That's why every morning, if we need to, if we've got real serious issues that we know we're limp in and weak in, we must, I say, Lord, Especially today, give me victory over a bad temper or whatever else, over cowardice. I pray for that very constantly because I know that deep down in my heart I'm a coward. And I know at the end of time I'm not going to be able to rely on my cowardice to get me through. I need the courage of Jesus. So I need that and I pray for that constantly. Many issues that you know that you might be different from me, you might be as tough as nails, but I'm not that type of person. And therefore, we need the power of Christ. And if you don't think you need the power of Christ, then you are in trouble. And this man found the true answer to legalism. Most go through that stage. They hear the truth. They want to live it. But we've got to teach them how they can surrender everything to the Lord every day. I'm doing this 
with our postmistress that I'm studying with at the moment, explaining to her how to give everything to the Lord every morning. Because if we don't do that, that day we'll somehow find an opportunity for Satan to get to us again. And we dishonor God, we injure someone, we don't represent him. Right. Listen, those 144,000 are going to be able to take this message to the world. They're going to, be, they're going to be people that are pure in heart. They're going to be able to represent what they believe. They can have no faults. They can have no um, defects of character because people would turn away from their final opportunity just because of the defects in the character of the one witnessing to them. The man of Romans 7 is not for our discouragement. It's to help us to see that while we try on our own, we're going to fail and get desperate. But when we allow Jesus to come in, you just go right through it and eventually that chapter ends on the great triumphal note that who shall separate us from the love of God? Who's going to do it? Who's going to separate us? What's going to separate us? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise the Lord for that. Listen, brethren and sisters, if you are in that situation, you're sincere, you want to be a Christian, you want to have victory over those besetting sins, there's only one way, and you might have to anguish, you might have to wrestle like Jacob did, morning by morning, but don't get off your knees till you know you have power for that day. When you know you have power, then you still have to resist the devil because you've submitted yourself to God and you will now have divine power united with the little efforts that we can put forward as we strive for the, the mastery, knowing that full well only the true power of Christ can take the little efforts that we put forward and bring the victory that we, we so much desire. I pray that we will realize that Romans 7 is... It can be a stepping stone if people can realize the real answer. But it's not what Christ wants. He doesn't want us in that misery. He doesn't want us in that problems. He wants to lead us home to the kingdom of heaven. And he will do that living in us so that we can live for him. May God bless us and may we all understand that these messages are for our admonition that we might be ready to go home to live with him. Listen, brethren and sisters, let us covenant together that we're going to be in heaven. And not only that, we're going to be vessels of the Lord to help others into the kingdom of heaven. That is so important. And if people reject it, it won't be because of our ineffectiveness or our ineptitude. It will be because they have turned away from the most um, cl and clearest testimony that could possibly be given to them. Let this message go round the world. Verbra verb uh, reverberate to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. God bless you. It's been wonderful to be with you today, and I pray that God will keep you faithful. Let's kneel in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I pray that not one here will be missing when you come. Oh Lord, it would be an infinite loss if any man, woman, or child were outside thy kingdom. We want to be ready to go home with thee.
please, O Lord, bless us and uphold us and strengthen us, we pray. And above all, come into our hearts. Take full possession. Help us to have complete victory over every besetting sin and over every impulsive sin, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.